I'm David Petz and this is the first of a few talks that I've been asked to give to encourage you at this difficult time. As many of us are in isolation at the moment, I'm going to be looking at some Bible passages where God's people were in isolation. Today we'll be looking at Isaiah chapters 36 and 37, which is one of the most exciting passages in the Bible. Sennacherib, king of Assyria, has invaded Judah and captured all the fortified cities with the exception of Jerusalem. Most recent to fall is Lachish, chapter 36, verse 2. It's just a few miles from Jerusalem. And from a bas-relief in the British Museum, we know that the inhabitants of Lachish were being decapitated, impaled on stakes, and even being skinned alive. Now Jerusalem itself is surrounded by a great army of the Assyrian forces. The entire city is cut off from the outside world. They are threatened with a similar fate to that of Lachish. The inhabitants are in isolation and defeat seems inevitable. Sennacherib sends a field commander to tell the people of Jerusalem to surrender. It's your only option. It's the only way to escape the horrors of Lachish. There's no one who can help you. And in chapter 36, verse 4, he says, What are you basing your confidence on? And that's something we might concentrate on just for a moment in the present crisis, or indeed in any crisis which we face as God's people. In verse 8, he says, Are you trusting in your own strength? He actually says to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, you haven't even got 2,000 men left. Even if we gave you horses to put on them, you don't stand a chance of beating us. The answer isn't in yourself. You haven't got the strength for it. And then in verse 6, he says, you're not relying on Egypt, are you? And we might say, are we relying on other countries to solve our problems for us? I think we're only too aware of that. Countries all over the world are facing similar problems to us right now and none of them seems to have the final answer, not just yet. And then in verse 14, the temptation is this, can you really trust your leaders? He says, don't think that Hezekiah, the king, can save you. He can't. Nobody's got the answer to this. And so this is a very real threat and a real temptation to the inhabitants of Jerusalem to give up, to surrender. And notice that all that the enemy has said so far is true. The broad principles remain the same for us today. The specifics aren't exactly the same. Of course they're not. Much of this applies in our present situation and in many situations in which we may find ourselves in the future. But the crux of the matter is this, what does the enemy say about God? And we might say as Christians, that's always the crux of the matter. What do people say about Jesus? And this brings us to the first aspect of the answer to the challenge. We've seen the challenge was extremely great for them. We know the challenge is extremely great for us right now. Well, the first thing I want you to notice is that we have to discern the truth from the lies of the enemy. This is absolutely fundamental. Notice how the enemy here 
combines truth with lies. Now we know our enemy is the devil and we know he's a liar from the beginning. But a good liar doesn't tell lies all the time. If there is such a thing as a good liar, uh, <laughs> a successful liar doesn't tell lies all the time. He mixes truth with lies so that he can gain your confidence. Just quickly running through some of the stuff the enemy says here. He says, Hezekiah has annoyed God by taking down the high places. There's a truth and a falsehood there. It's true that Hezekiah has taken down the high places. It's not true that he's annoyed God by doing it. He's actually pleased God by doing it. The enemy says, God's on my side. He's told me to come and to destroy you. That's completely false. The enemy says, the gods of the nations haven't saved them. That's absolutely true. So your God can't save you. That is absolutely false. So you see this mixture of truth and lies in order to persuade God's people to give up. And I want to suggest to you at the moment, there's a whole lot of truth going around, but there's a whole lot of lies going around as well. Fake news, as it's so often called these days. We need to learn to discern the truth from the lies. And of course, as a more general principle, we know that we can discern truth from lies by knowing what does the scripture say? What does the Bible have to say? God's word is truth. Anything that goes contrary to that is not the truth. All right, so first of all, discern the truth from the lies of the enemy. Secondly, doing what our leaders tell us. Look at chapter 36, verses 20 to 21. I'll just read it to you. Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? That's what the enemy says. But they were silent, that's the inhabitants of Jerusalem, were silent and answered him not a word, for the king's command was, do not answer him. To me that's very, very important, highly significant. They were loyal to their leader. It would have been very, very easy for them to say, hey, now listen here, and answered back. But that wasn't what they were to do. The king had said, do not answer him a word. And so they do not answer a word. Doing what our leaders tell us. And that, at this particular critical moment, is very important that we do actually self-isolate when our Political leaders are telling us to do so. As Christians, that's something we should be doing, keeping the rules that have been set for us. But of course, there is an application spiritually here. Thank God for our good spiritual leaders who are giving us wise counsel at this time. Listen to your local and national spiritual leaders. Do what they say. See, Hezekiah wanted to hear what God had to say rather than letting the people give an answer to the enemy. And there's a whole lot of people trying to give answers at the moment, but I want to hear what God has to say at the moment. So that brings me to my next point, hearing what God is saying. I'm moving into chapter 37 now, verses 5 to 7. When the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, now Isaiah of course was the prophet, and Hezekiah sent a message to the prophet asking him, 
what to say. So, verse 6, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him, so that he shall hear a rumour and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. More of the consequences ultimately for uh, Sennacherib and so on uh, towards the end of this message. But the thing I want you to notice here is how immediately Isaiah has got an answer. He doesn't have to say, I'm going to go and pray about this for a month and then I'll, I'll come back, I'll, I'll give you an answer. This man's in tune with God. He's hearing what the Spirit is saying. He knows exactly what's going to happen because he's in touch with God and God knows exactly what's going to happen. His answer was ready. Let's keep full of the Holy Spirit. We all have a prophetic ministry in a way. In the New Testament, there's a sense in which all God's people are prophets, not, of course, the Ephesians 4.11 kind, but um, we all can speak on behalf of God, which is essentially what a prophet is. Let's keep in touch with God and know what we have to say at the right time to the right people. So that's the third thing. And then fourthly, knowing how to pray. Chapter 37, verses 16 to 20. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear, open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. I noticed five constituent elements in this prayer, and they actually make a very good model for our prayer in any situation, and especially in the one we're facing right now. He begins with worship in verse 16 and a recognition of God's sovereignty. God is enthroned above the cherubim. He's God alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. The sovereignty of God and we worship him. Then he presents a simple request in verse 17. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Wow, very simple request. And then a statement of fact. It's true that the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and so on. So he brings the facts before the Lord. Not that the Lord needed to be telling him the facts, but perhaps he's reassuring himself as he prays. And then there's a statement of faith in verse 19. For they were no gods, but the works of men's hands, wood and stone, therefore they were destroyed. There you are, you see, as we said in a previous point, he's discerning truth from fiction. He knows the truth because he knows God's word and he makes a statement of faith. They were no gods. That's why they were destroyed. But now, Lord, you are not like them. And what a motive. Final element in this prayer in verse 20. So, Lord, save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are God alone. Wow. Not, save me, Lord, I don't want to be skinned alive. Save me, Lord, I don't want to be decapitated. Save me, Lord, help. No, 
save us, Lord, so that all the kingdom of the earth may know that you are God alone. Oh God, do something in this present situation that people may know that Jesus is the Lord. And then finally, trusting the supernatural power of the true and living God. Or if you prefer it slightly differently, trusting that God knows what he is doing and what he's going to do in the present crisis. Quite a long reading now from Isaiah 37, 21 to 36. This is Isaiah's final reply to Hezekiah. This is what it says. Then Isaiah the son of Amos sent to Hezekiah saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria. This is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. She despises you. She scorns you. The virgin daughter of Zion, she wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Whom have you mocked and reviled, Sennacherib? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. By your servants, you have mocked the Lord. You have said, with my many chariots, I have gone up to the mountains, to the far recesses of Lebanon. I've cut down its tallest trees, its choicest, choicest cypresses. I've come to its remotest height, its most fruitful forest. I've dug wells and drank waters. I've dried up with the sole of my foot all the streams of Egypt. You're saying you've done it all, Sennacherib. And now God says, haven't you heard that I, the Lord, determined this long ago. I planned from days of old what I now bring to pass. What an assurance in the present crisis. God says, I planned from days of old what I now bring to pass with a purpose. That you should make fortified cities crash into heaps of ruin while their inhabitants, shorn of strength, are dismayed and confounded. I know you're sitting down, Sennacherib, and you're going out, I know all about you, and you're coming in, and you're raging against me. And because you've raged against me, and your complacency has come up to my ears, I wonder if that's a message for our nation today, complacency. I will put my hook in your nose, a horrible thing the Assyrians often did to their enemies. I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. The enemy will be turned back on the way in which it came. Therefore, verse 33, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Iria, Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a seed mound, siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And the angel of the Lord went out 
and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people rose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Wow, one angel deals with 185,000 problems overnight. Let's not forget the supernatural power of the true and living God and that God knows what he's doing. He's got a plan in everything that's happening. Finally, let me remind you that about 700 years later, an even greater victory was won outside those same city walls, the walls of Jerusalem. This time it wasn't won by an angel, but by God himself. And he let them impale him on a stake for what looked like defeat. He turned into victory. Colossians 2.15 tells me, having disarmed the powers and authorities, Jesus made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The ultimate victory over anything and everything the enemy throws against us is Jesus' victory on the cross. And because of that, we know we shall be victorious. And whether we live or die, we have eternal life because of Jesus. God bless you.